Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did aliens really abduct Betty and Barney Hill on a New Hampshire road in 1961? Why did the case get so much press? And was science really wrong? Hey there, and welcome to the 190th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. Now, tonight's guest appeared only a month ago on our CBS Sunday evening show, but there was so much outside interference, (laughs) we have never been able to explain, that many live listeners just turned us off, and the podcast was completely lost. So we not only have a famous lost show, uh, it was the first time in two and a half years on the air that that has ever happened to us. So first, let's get to our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, what American author wrote The Shunned, the Shunned House? Yes. And that referred to the story by H.P. Lovecraft of uh, Rhode Island. Apparently, the winner was Damien French from Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. And... This week's question is a little bit harder, even though everybody was complaining last week that our questions are too hard. Where does the lake monster known as Cressy live? Not Chessy, Cressy. Yeah, there's no H in there. So if you can deal with that, call us locally at 401-766-1240 or from anywhere in the U.S. at 800-449-1240. If I don't announce a winner during the show and you still think you have a shot, drop a line to me at bennettbehindtheparanormal.com. Okay, well, trusting to the good offices of uh, WON 1240 AM here, uh, making her first hopefully audible appearance on Behind the Paranormal this evening, is Kathleen Marden, niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Ms. Marden earned her B.A. in social work at the University of New Hampshire in 1971, then did graduate work in education at the University of Cincinnati and later UNH. She was a social worker and eventually became a teacher and administrator. In 1990, she became a full-time UFO investigator, researcher, and writer. Ms. Marden taught adult education classes on UFO and abduction history, and for 10 years volunteered as the Mutual, the Mutual UFO Networks, that's MUFON's, Director of Field Investigator Training. In 2003, MUFON recognized uh, Ms. Marden as... Um, lost my place. Uh, outstanding contribution to the field by dedicating the MUFON Symposium proceedings to her. Several of her articles have been published in the MUFON Journal. She has written papers on the use and misuse of hypnosis and abduction investigations, and many more topics we'll discuss tonight. Her 2007 book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, with co-author Stanton T. Friedman, is a case study of the abduction of her aunt and uncle. Her latest book, also co-authored with Friedman, Science Was Wrong, is now available. And her website, www.kathleen-marden.com, M-A-R-D-E-N. Kathleen Marden, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you again. Well, good. Well, better luck this time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, and uh, just to uh, give the numbers again, I guess, uh, if you'd like to speak with us again our, or our guest this evening, call 401-766-1240 in the local area or nationally 800-449-1240. So before my dad has a chance to step in my lines again, how well do you did you know your aunt and uncle? My aunt and uncle were pretty close family members. They lived about 20 miles away from my childhood home, and my mother... And Betty, her sister, were were uh, very close. In fact, when I was born in 1948, my parents were living in Portsmouth, 
and that's where Betty and her first husband lived, and they were actually next-door neighbors. So Betty frequently took care of me, and uh, I formed a, a very strong bond with her, I believe, as a result of that. She was nearly like a second mother to me growing up and throughout her life. Okay, so what happened to Betty and Barney? Well, <laughs> very strange event. They were returning home from a vacation uh, to Niagara Falls and then on to Montreal in 1961. would have been September 19, 1961. It was a brief vacation. Traveling through New Hampshire's White Mountains when Betty spotted something new in the sky. At first, it appeared to be a falling star, only it was falling upwards instead of in its usual course, and this really was perplexing to her. So she continued to watch it, and as she watched it, it grew larger and larger in the sky. It had stopped beside the moon, and she was so perplexed by this, wondering if it was a satellite or, or what it might have been, that she finally convinced my Uncle Barney to pull over to the side of the road so that she could get a better look at it. And when they did, she noticed that it had uh, traveled in front of the face of the moon, flashing multicolored lights. It was then about a third the size of the moon. And as Barney watched it, when Betty returned to the car, it traveled, uh, had already passed the moon and was traveling toward Vermont. But without looking as if it had turned, it just shot back in their direction. And at that point, he could see the windows in it. It was completely silent, and this was very perplexing to him. So they just continued south. They were planning to to arrive at their home in Portsmouth at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and they would stop from time to time to look at it. And it just traveled closer and closer. Its course was continuing to be erratic. It seemed to be pacing them. It would bounce back and forth in the sky. Uh, It would travel in a stair-step pattern. It appeared to be rotating like a top at one time. And this was just really perplexing to them. Barney kept trying to explain it as a conventional aircraft. He was a confirmed skeptic, didn't believe that UFOs were real. Betty thought that they might be, but she didn't have a long-term interest in the subject and didn't really know very much about UFOs. So they just headed through the area called Franconia Notch, that's that, the, the tourist area, mm-hmm. and uh, sightseeing area. Cannon Mountain is there. The old man of the mountain was there before it fell. In yeah. Symbol of the and state of New Hampshire. They noticed that when they stopped at the old man of the mountain, the craft appeared to be about one and a half times the length of the old man's profile, which was 48 feet from forehead to chin. So that gives you an idea of how large the craft was. It wasn't just a star in the sky. And it was completely silent. It didn't appear to be a conventional aircraft of any type. Well, they they exited Franconia Notch finally, 
and they were in the tourist area uh, where all of the motels start, right in the Indian Head area of North Lincoln. And Barney was driving. He felt relieved that they were finally in a populated area, although it was the off-season. And Betty was growing excited. Now, Barney knew that Betty rarely became excited. So he thought that something pretty significant was going on with this thing. He decided he wanted to pull over and get another look at it. But before he was able to do that, the craft shifted ahead of them and stopped directly over and just to the right of the highway. When that happened, Barney suddenly stopped his car right in the middle of Route 3 going down through New Hampshire. And the craft continued to descend in their direction. It stopped when it was maybe 100, 200 feet above their vehicle. They, the recorded, the reason I say 100 or 200 feet is the recorded details of their sighting uh, in their report to Pease Air Force Base and their report to Walter Webb and even the, the drawings that they did of this when they arrived home, sometimes uh, 200 feet, sometimes 100 feet. They weren't sure. But anyway, at that point, Barney got out of the car and he started looking at it through binoculars. He and my aunt could both look up, even without binoculars, and see a lighted row of windows around a disc-shaped craft. It was completely silent, and it was just hovering in the air. As Barney was looking at it, it shifted location from above their car to the adjacent field, and he walked toward it with his binoculars up to his eyes, he observed 8 to 11 non-human figures looking down at him. He, at that point, didn't remember exactly what their facial features looked like. He was so shocked by all of this that he developed a mental block. But in the initial early reports, he did say that they were non-human figures dressed in black, shiny uniforms. One remained at the window while the others moved to a panel or a wall on the back of this corridor that seemed to circle around the exterior of the craft. And the being at the window held a special attraction for Barney. He seemed to be communicating with him that he had a plan And Barney was very fearful at that point that the plan was to capture him. And in the early reports, he said like a bug in a net. So uh, he really wanted to get away from all of this. When the figures moved to that panel in the back of the hallway, the craft tipped toward Barney and something started to drop out of the bottom of it. There were also little fin-like structures that started to sort of telescope out of each side of that disc. And finally, he was able to break away. He actually broke the leather binocular strap when he pulled those binoculars down away from his eyes, running back to the car and screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to get captured. 
Betty had been sitting in the car, and she was becoming more and more upset because she thought that Barney was in danger. And she kept calling for him, and he didn't come. She was thinking that if he didn't come soon, she was going to get out of the car and go into the field after him. But he came running, he got into the car, um, threw his binoculars down, and started driving rapidly down the highway. He told Betty to roll down her window and look up, because when he returned to the car, he noticed that the craft had followed him, and it was once again over their vehicle. Well, Betty looked up, and she didn't see anything. All she saw was blackness. It was a bright, starry night. The sun was a wax, uh, the moon was a waxing gibbous moon. But she didn't see any of that. All she saw was blackness. And suddenly she and my uncle heard a series of beeping or buzzing sounds that seemed to be hitting, striking the trunk of their car. And it caused the car to vibrate. And for this vibrating sensation to pass through their bodies. Their bodies tingled, and they started to feel drowsy. Instead of talking to each other, and you think that they would, I know that if it were my husband, I'd want to know immediately what he saw in the field, and Betty was a lot like me. But they didn't speak again for 30 miles. In that time frame, they did recall a few things. They had a vague memory of encountering a roadblock somewhere. They had a vague memory of a fiery orb in the road silhouetted against some trees. Then they had a second series of these code-like beeping or buzzing sounds that returned them to full consciousness. And that is when they resumed talking to each other. They looked around for the UFO. They could not find it. They didn't see it again. And they drove back to their home in Portsmouth, looking in the sky for it, but not seeing it. When they arrived home, they noticed that they were a little later than they anticipated. It was actually 5 o'clock in the morning. It was daylight. The birds were singing. They uh, checked their watches, and the watches apparently had stopped. They didn't think much of it at the time. They they. They had checked them the previous evening a couple of times. Betty had checked hers for the last time at 11.20 when they were passing by Cannon Mountain. But they hadn't checked them again. Their watches were broken. They never worked again. Hmm. The tops of Barney's best dress shoes were deeply scraped. He had to wear them for yard work after that. And he was a meticulous dresser. The dress that Betty had put on that morning was torn. And it was torn in a very bizarre way. The top of the zipper was torn two inches on one side and one inch on the other side. It was in fine condition when she put it on. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. The hem was torn down on one side. No prosaic explanation for what happened to them. Very strange event. Indeed. 13 when I heard about this. All right. All right, so do you have any doubts about the story? I'll tell you, I began my research because I did have doubts. 
I began my research 20 years ago, and I left my profession at that time because I was so curious about this that it had an incredible impact upon my life. You can imagine Mm. being 13 years old and having close family members uh, tell you this story. And I, I would have just sort of brushed it off if those family members were two of the less credible people in the family, but these were highly credible people. Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. She was later promoted to supervisor. Barney worked for the post office, but he was also uh, very active in the civil rights movement. Uh, He was um, in the NAACP. He was uh, legal uh, redress for the NAACP. He was appointed by the governor of the state of New Hampshire to serve on the state advisory committee to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, and he was also a delegate to Lyndon Johnson's campaign. The three of us actually attended Johnson's inauguration in 1965. So you can see that he was well-known, well-liked, and politically active in the state. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I had to believe that they saw a UFO. My big question and my big reason for investigating all of this was the issue of whether or not they really were abducted. And if their abduction counts, if they were abducted, were accurate. I thought that I might be able to find a clue to that in the hypnosis tapes themselves. I knew that about 10 days after they returned from their trip in 1961, Betty had a series of five dreams or nightmares. And on each end of those was uh, conscious recollection of the UFO sighting itself. But sandwiched in between was a UFO abduction. So what I wanted to do was to compare Betty's written account of her dream to the hypnosis tape that Betty and Barney had with Dr. Benjamin Simon over a period of six months. They went every single Saturday for six months. So I had a a lot of transcribing to do Mm -hmm. and a lot of comparative analysis. But in the end, I had some interesting results. Well, what were, what were the results? First of all, what, what led up to the hypnosis? What prompted them to go for hypnosis? Well, immediately after they returned home on September 20th, 1961, Betty wanted to learn more about flying saucers. So she went to the library, and she took out a book written by Major Donald Kehoe, who was the director of uh, NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And in the back of the book uh, was an address, and he asked that if anyone had a UFO sighting, would they please uh, write to him? So she did. And in that letter, dated September 25, 1961, she said that she was looking for a competent psychiatrist who would hypnotize Barney to try to uncover what had caused this mental block about these beings appearance. Well, they didn't get to a hypnotist until 
1963. It was December of 1963 when they had their first appointment with Dr. Benjamin Simon in Boston. And he was a renowned psychiatrist who used hypnotic regression to help people overcome trauma that they had experienced uh, for which they had amnesia. He had, a re- had built his reputation during World War II. He was the chief of psychiatry. He had set up the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital on Long Island, New York. It was a 3,000-bed unit that treated shell shock victims from World War II, what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. So he saw Betty and Barney. He hypnotized them separately, and he imposed amnesia at the end of each session. Two reasons for that. One was so that they couldn't contaminate each other's information because he himself was attempting to determine if this was real. And also because the degree of the trauma they each experienced when they were reliving this event under hypnosis was so great, he said it was greater than any shell shock victim he had ever worked with. It was so great that he didn't want to further traumatize them by permitting them to remember the entire event. So that's... That's what brought him to that. Okay. So uh, under hypnosis, uh, what what was revealed under hypnosis? Well, they both stated that they had been abducted. They uh, Barney had been forced to turn off the road without knowing why. Uh, there were men in the road. That was the roadblock that they partially recalled. Uh, the men approached their vehicle. Now, in Betty's dreams... The men surrounded the car. There were 8 to 11 of them. Um, Betty and Barney sat silently, and they were taken from the car. Okay. Under hypnosis, both Betty and Barney told a different story than in Betty's dream. They each said that three of these beings approached, they divided into two groups of three, and the three approached Betty's door and three approached Barney's door. They didn't sit silently and motionless. Betty was very frightened, as was Barney. He was confused. He was he was trying to start the car. It wouldn't start. He was thinking about going for his gun. He said, I think it's the ones that I saw in the field. Um, they both became terrified. Betty tried to escape from the car but was caught before she could get out. Barney finally opened the door and put his foot on the ground. So it, I found that this, their statements uh, were identical, given you know the differences in in speech patterns and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but the descriptive detail was there, and it was different from in their dreams. Okay, uh, Kathleen. A few questions arise. Now I was eight years old at the time. That mm-hmm. occurred, uh, and I was not too familiar with New Hampshire. I lived in Connecticut, but Route Three has been a major thoroughfare up there for almost a century, really. And even with the advent of Interstate 89, which kind of cuts across the state, uh, pretty much uh, from Concord all the way up across the Connecticut River into Vermont, uh, it, it's it still is a major road. I've always wondered why other people 
if if they saw this craft, especially the size that you describe, why nobody else reported it, or did someone else report it? Well, that's an interesting question. The original writer, um, John Luttrell, who wrote about their story as a violation of confidentiality, actually, Betty and Barney never wanted this story told, but he said that there were other witnesses. But when Stanton Friedman and others have looked for uh, the information about who those other witnesses were, uh, John Luttrell told them that he thought that all of the information had been destroyed. When he left the newspaper, all of the information had been left there, and they never were able to get that. Now, it was the off-season, and Betty and Barney said that they didn't encounter other cars when they were on that part of the route. I was visiting Betty uh, in the, uh, the earlier part of, uh, oh, I'd say probably about 2002, 2003, and she was on the telephone with a man. He was a truck driver, and he said that he saw the UFO on that night mm. but had never reported it. But he was then old, and he wanted Betty to know that somebody else witnessed it. I to reason to get his address and his phone number and his name. I put the paper down for Betty, and I was so disappointed when she didn't write that down for me because I was at that point investigating this case. I wanted to talk to other witnesses, but this. Uh, but she didn't take the information. I asked her why, and she said, Oh, Kathy, either you're going to believe the story or you're not. Forget about it. <laughs> so I was very disappointed, I have to tell you. Yeah, well, that's almost 50 years ago now, but uh, hey, if anybody here in New England is listening, <laughs> was a yes, witness, please. let, let Kathleen know. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, there's. I guess Ben had a question here about, uh, there, there was some validity, a question about the validity of hypnosis, I mean, as you know, uh, and it's used in, in uh, various areas of paranormal research from time to time, especially UFO research. Uh, hypnosis was um, pretty much the thing up until the 70s, and, and, and then it kind of fell into a certain amount of disrepute, and now it's been rehabilitated again, uh, and all this sort of thing. So, uh, Ben, what's your, what was your question about uh well, you see, um, what about false memories and all that when it comes to validity of hypnosis? Well, that was the reason for my doing the comparative analysis between Betty's dream and the hypnosis, the statements Betty and Barney made under hypnosis. I only knew that I could trust whether or not this was real if I could find correlating data on the hypnosis transcript that would tell me that it was so. And I could only do that uh, by comparing Betty's statements to Barney's statements when the two of them were together uh, at the abduction site, being taken onto the craft, and being taken off from the craft. The rest, I really it couldn't... Uh, Verify. I couldn't compare that in any way um, because I didn't, you know, scientifically, because 
there was there was not another witness. I had to have a witness. Mm-hmm. And it was and Betty and Barney were alone during their physical exams on board the craft. Okay. Uh, so what I did find was a lot of information, and I wrote about this in my book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And there was a lot of information I found that led me to believe that at least part of this experience was real, and probably a good part of it. I do believe that Betty uh, did relive the fantasy portion of her dream material at least for part of her physical examination, her, the time that she spent on the craft. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a real quick uh, break here and return uh, very shortly to talk about uh, the Betty and Barney Hill experience and also other UFO matters with Kathleen Marden, researcher, author, and uh, here on WON 1240 AM on ON Worldwide in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Uh, I did want to mention that uh, a lot of people ask where they can get my books, and uh, one place locally here in uh, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, is at the Museum of Work and Culture gift shop. They always stock them, and even if you can't find them at Barnes & Noble or wherever, which you sometimes can, uh, they're available at the the Museum of Work and Culture, which is at Market Square in Woonsocket, and it is a a Disney-quality museum of uh, tremendous interest to those particularly uh, who have a, a, a concern or an interest about the history, industrial history of the Blackstone Valley where the American Revolution, uh, American uh, in- Industrial Revolution, I should say, was born and exhibits uh, document the life, lives particularly of the French-Canadian immigrants who worked in the mills here and it's uh, very poignant and uh, again very high quality and uh, it's a wonderful wonderful experience for anyone who is a local or a tourist and uh, there is a, a booming tourism industry here in the Blackstone Valley uh, a lot of um, uh, local people visiting uh, of course from uh, around New England uh, now that uh, you know the economy isn't so fantastic and people don't necessarily fly to Europe every summer so whether you're a visitor from far away or near uh, check out the Museum of Work and Culture you can get my, uh, my my books, uh, they usually have also my, uh, along with my paranormal titles, uh, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, Footsteps in the Attic, and Faces at the Window. They have a Rhode Island, a genial history, which I co-authored with Channel 12 historian and reporter Glenn Laxton. Uh, it's being used in several school districts, so I guess we did something right. Anyway, check those out, Museum of Work and Culture, or uh, our websites, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com or NewEnglandGhosts.com, and you can uh, check out my books and um Feel free to buy them. Okay. So let's return to uh, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WON 1240 AM in southeastern New England. And we're talking this evening with, with uh, Kathleen Marden, author and UFO e- expert, who was the, uh, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, the famous abductees from 1961. And I just wanted to start off uh, our uh, final section of the show here, uh, Betty, uh, uh, Betty <laughs> Kathleen, with the question, why did this case, how did the press first get wind of this, and why did it get so much press? Well, they first got wind of it on, uh, well, it was the, the article was published on October 25th, 1965. So the event happened in 61. There were confidential reports filed. They were always to remain confidential, but then there was a violation of confidentiality. Someone who had talked to Betty and Barney, who had information about what they had said under hypnosis, had also talked to this newspaper reporter. 
and for five nights, uh, their story ran in the Boston Traveler. It got so much press because it was, it had never been reported before in the United States. This was the first case of uh, a couple who had, or anyone, who had been abducted by a UFO. Uh, and, and Betty and Barney were such highly credible people. Their psychiatrist, Dr. Benjamin Simon, who did the hypnosis, was so well-known and highly credible that uh, it just became uh, a, a very prominent story okay. in, in the news. All right. And who knows how many occurred and were not reported. Or did not True. have any Very, violations of confidentiality. Many people have come forward um, and stated that they were abducted before Betty and Barney were. Mm-hmm. That has been more recently. Well, you look back all the way to Amenhotep the Fourth Pharaoh of Egypt, who had his disc experience. You know, and you, it makes you wonder. Um, okay, I guess uh, Ben uh, has a kind of a more personal question for you. Have you yourself ever had a close encounter? Yes, I actually have had a close encounter. I wrote about that in Capture. I didn't identify myself. Um, It was uh, what I did was I quoted uh, uh, the documentation from a sighting. It was a multiple witness sighting that uh, I had with my Aunt Betty. Uh, my mother was there, my grandmother, a family friend, and my brother. And this was in, I believe it was February of 1965 in Newton, New Hampshire, where for a period of up to an hour, I would say, we observed at close range at times, within 500 feet of us, a, a disc, a silent hovering disc. At one point, it shot out a funnel-shaped light at my mother. And my mother said that it appeared to be a hollow kind of core uh, in this funnel-shaped light. It was very, very unusual. Scared the daylights out of her. Uh, and that is at the point that we decided to hightail it out of there. But my mother recorded the event, and Betty also recorded the event. So mm. I... I put their descriptions together in Captured, and you can read about that. Okay, yeah, well, we want to have you tell us about your books as, as we come to the end. But um, it, it, it sort of strikes uh, us, of course, we're primarily, uh, Ben and I are primarily uh, ghost phenomena researchers, not UFO researchers, but we found that because we spend so long on cases, uh, the longest case we've done is uh, was 10 years we find that it very often leads into other areas of the paranormal. As a matter of fact, it's getting to the point where it's strange if it doesn't. There seem to be uh, UFO repercussions, even to ghost cases. It's strange because we think the same process is involved in uh, all paranormal phenomena. For example, we had a case in Connecticut that started with uh, quote-unquote ghosts and various things people were seeing, and, and now it's, it's, it's turned into a, essentially a UFO case uh, complete with armed troops and things of this kind. Uh, and th- it has pointed out one thing that I just wanted to get your comment on, and, and that is that in this particular case, people were getting out of their cars 
and watching UFOs in the sky, as in the Hudson, the Hudson Valley cases and things of this kind in that area, and this particular one being in Connecticut. Other people in other cases don't seem to, you, know, you just have very subjective experiences where only one or two or, or a very small group of people, even in a populated area, will see the UFO. What do, what do you think that's about? How come there are mass sightings sometimes and very kind of individual and personal sightings at other times? <laughs> that's really difficult to explain. And, you know, I, I approach this as a social scientist. So I'm uh, not apt to simply believe something. Mm. Uh, if there are uh, many, many credible witnesses uh, who have observed this, if I'm convinced that uh, it's not a result of uh, the excitement and the will to see something, that, they, you know, that they've actually observed something, it's not just the light in the sky, but it's something at close range, then certainly that that's good uh, evidence that that something occurred. Uh, the the events where there might be a hundred people watching and ten people see the craft and the rest don't is very very perplexing to me. Mm. I have no explanation for that. Well, I we really do, but you're the you expert. Know, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, because well, well, you know us that we're kind of involved in the multiverse research aspect of this and and um, you can't have very subjective experiences that are nonetheless real but another thing i wanted to to ask you was about our mutual friend that ted phillips uh, ted phillips was a guest recently and he is a renowned collector of physical evidence of ufo appearances and landings in particular and he has pointed out and i wanted to get your take on this he has pointed out that from the days of the betty and barney hill incident up until today there have been changes in the nature of ufo experiences uh, particularly in in the sense that people used to see up until relatively recently would see craft even as you pointed out with windows and little guys looking out of the windows but now it seems that there are more incidents of smaller ball or orb like or as he calls them ovals appearing in uh, in people's yards and in the woods and all this sort of thing. Uh, what's your impression? Uh, do you think the nature of the UFO phenomenon is changing? I think that the modus operandi is changing uh, somewhat because the the craft seem to be abducting people from the road or from the woods or camping or whatever, maybe once. But then... The, they continue to have abductions after that, and often those abductions occur from their homes sometimes when they're sleeping or very often when they're sleeping. And, and that's an area that makes it really, really difficult because then you say, are they having hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations or is this a real event? So, you know, the reason, that's a reason for putting um, action uh, activated security cameras, infrared cameras in people's houses. I do, I can tell you that from the very beginning, there were odd paranormal events that took place in the homes of the early abductees. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not reported uh, generally because 
they didn't, the researchers didn't want, investigators didn't want to add a crackpot element to all of this, and they thought that it was really a crackpot element. But I can tell you that many of the early abductees reported orbs in their homes. They reported poltergeist-like activity, Mm -hmm. not before their abduction, but after their abduction. Yeah, we find that day in and day out, and nobody else seems to be paying attention to it. They don't make the connection. That's my problem with Western thinking. We, we We take things apart rather than put them together. Therefore, we can't see the big picture most of the time. And, I, and my next question, I know Ben's got a question here too, but I was going to ask you uh, if uh, Betty and Barney had other sorts of paranormal activity that perhaps they didn't associate with their UFO experience. There was some paranormal activity in their home, and they did associate it okay. with UFO experience. Also in my own childhood home, and this was after a UFO landed across the street from my house and left physical trace evidence on the ground and was observed by a neighbor who was a commercial pilot returning home from work at night. Um, So uh, after that happened in my own childhood home, we observed orbs, light orbs, the door at one point, and this, there were multiple witnesses. My father was a Boy Scout leader. He had the committee at the house, and our front door opened. The cat walked in, and then it closed. <laughs> Nobody opened it. Now the this cat was, was really an alien. Yeah, you, should, you should meet our cat. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, this this is uh, you know I often point this out on the show, but I, I never get tired of mentioning it because I can never get over it. But uh, Ben was what were you seven? What? And we went down to that. Uh, Herb Herb Farm in Connecticut, which was allegedly haunted. I would never bring him in on a case at that age, except that this was very benign and the people wanted us to see all this positive phenomena that was going on. And then all of a sudden comes out with, Dad, there are going to be UFOs involved in this case. And I said, what? What are you talking about? And he was right. One of the first things the woman mentioned was that UFOs had been seen on the property. And uh, so that's when we this is this goes back quite a few years, and we were ever since then we look for them for them, and very often we find them. So okay, Ben, I guess we wanted to move on to the topic of science was wrong. All right, okay. Well, you pretty much asked the question, so let's move on to your next book, Science Was Wrong. So tell us about why science was wrong. Okay, it's science was wrong. Startling truths about cures, theories, and inventions. They declared impossible. So what Stanton Friedman and I did was we examined science over the past 150 years. And uh, we looked at cases where there was very good science involved, but there were very influential, well-educated, powerful individuals who made proclamations of impossibility and uh, suppressed these scientific uh, discoveries and, and findings. In the end, they, they all came forward, but sometimes uh, it was uh, detrimental to society that these inventions were kept from us uh, over these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what it's about. We, we've divided the book into five different sections. Stan did a sec- section on aerospace, a section on communication. I did a section on medicine, three chapters of that. 
we together on a section on politics. I did two chapters there, and he did one on global warming. Um, And then we did a section called The Frontiers of Science, where I examined uh, the scientific evidence for telepathy. Mm -hmm. And also, Stan wrote a chapter on UFOs. And I wrote a chapter called The Conundrum of Alien Abduction. And that is a chapter where I asked, why is it that money for research uh, was being awarded to people like Dr. James McDonald, uh, the atmospheric physicist from uh, the University of Arizona, the late atmospheric physicist. He had been department head of the physics department. Uh, and and was being awarded funding for research, and his findings were published in prestigious peer-reviewed journals. But all of a sudden, the focus shifted from UFO evidence to what was wrong with these people who were observing UFOs. So then it was a sudden shift to social science, and the article's Thereafter were social science articles, mm-hmm. and so I I answered that question. I believe I think I found good evidence of what happened, and I then I examined the results of all of these social science studies that were done uh, over a period of from 1970 right up until about 2004, and uh, with some very surprising results actually, because uh, I found that those abductees or uh, people who at least were suspected of having UFO abductions, uh, who had met all the criteria for having had a real abduction, were no more fantasy prone or mentally ill than the general population. Mm -hmm. So... uh, I was I was pleased actually to to read that result after all of this work I did reading all of these reports, and then I looked into best evidence cases and the characteristics of best evidence cases, and you know that thirty percent of abductions uh, are recalled consciously without hypnosis. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and and 40% of abductees recall at least having a close encounter with the craft before the abduction takes place. That is on the first event, at least. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the, the, the book on science is, I, I have not, I've read Captured, but I haven't had a chance to read Science is, was wrong yet, and I can't wait to do it, because we run into that all the time, uh, personal bias affecting uh, in politics, affecting scientific findings, and simply the narrow-mindedness of um, the, the epistemology, you know, those, how do we know what we know, and they assume that we know this and that and the other thing, and we don't. And it's uh, very frustrating when you're in any sort of paranormal research, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you. Uh, yeah. Uh, the question, of course, ultimately, at the end of every paranormal discussion, uh, every UFO discussion, is what are we really dealing with? You know, what are these grays or whatever? We've, we've had guests on the show who have all sorts of theories. We've had guest grays and... <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, we have, yeah, well, we have to hear their point of view sometime. But 
what, what, in your opinion, is the UFO phenomenon all about? Well, in my opinion, I believe that it's an extraterrestrial visitation. Now, you know, I, I know all about the, the hypothesis that it might be interdimensional, that they might be time travelers or yeah. something like that. But I wonder if their science is so advanced that we really can't understand it. And so we're thinking of it as being interdimensional. But maybe it's simply that their scientific understanding and knowledge and development is so much more advanced than ours. So, But I do believe that they are coming from other planets. That's what I think, based upon my research. Okay. And and I, I, not to interrupt, but I, we're coming down the wire here, but I have brought this up with Stan Friedman from time to time. And I, I have... Um, I'm amazed at the the assumption that most of us make that when we use the word advanced, it means technologically advanced rather than spiritually advanced or philosophically advanced or uh, that that advancement has got to do only with technology. Um, What say you? Well, I certainly hope that they are spiritually advanced. I've done a lot of thinking about that. Why don't they make contact with us? And I, I have a hunch that it might be for, well, a, a few reasons. But one of those might be that they fear that the impact of, compact, of uh, contact would be de- devastating to our society. Um, also, I, you know, I wonder if they are even so far ahead of us that they think of us as the way that we think about uh, great apes, for example, mm-hmm. that, you know, we haven't normalized relations with the uh, great ape population, uh, although we study them. Maybe they're doing the same thing with us and, and simply feel that we are so primitive and inferior to them, that we are only here for their observation yeah. and not for interaction. Well, I was never particularly fond of apes anyway. Uh, c- can you tell us again about your books and uh, where people can get them and uh, what you're working on next? Sure. Uh, the first book that I wrote with Stanton Friedman is Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, the True Story of the World's First documented alien abduction. It's really a biography and case study put together of my aunt and uncle's experience, Betty and Barney Hill. And our second book is Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. You can purchase autographed copies of both books from my website. It's www. Kathleen with a K, K A T H L E E N dash or hyphen Marden M A R D N dot com, and uh, get those right out to you. You can purchase them with PayPal. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you don't care whether it's autographed. The books are available at Barnes and Noble, 
Uh, they're at, on Amazon. Uh, they're at any bookstore, actually. You can order them. And uh, Captured is in the Paranormal section, and Science Was Wrong is in the Science section. Excellent. Okay, well, Kathleen, I think we finally did this. Okay. Okay, so thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you very soon. We'll stay in touch. Have a good one. Thanks for a great show. Yes, thank you. Great, and thanks for having me on. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. And I just want to remind everyone, we have BehindTheParanormal.com as our show website. You can check out our guests past present and future and there are over 200 podcasts of our previous shows and from they're all channels. free and so you can have them wherever you want and that's on behindtheparanormal.com and newskyradio.com and you can communicate with us through there you can subscribe to our little newsletter or you can apply to become a show reporter alright so many thanks to our producer Craig Pelletier the Great, and we'll see you right here next Monday, November 22nd on WOON 1240 AM and com. when Ben and I will take the hour ourselves for another open line show to take calls, hear from our show reporters, and catch up on all those emails that are still piled up from our coast-to-coast appearance last month. Yes, a large stack of emails we must get through. It's like we're, San- like we're a couple Santa Claus or something. <laughs> right, so... You be the elf. No. And on our CBS Radio Edition... On next Sunday, November 21st, we will welcome Gary Heseltine. 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 Heseltine, right. A service... Uh, Serving, I should say. uh, uh, Serving British police official who has assembled the largest database of police contact with UFOs, and that will be live at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on CBS New Sky Radio in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, and online at www.newskyradio.com. I hope it's in Pittsburgh. We'll just start it anyway. Uh, we leave you with an old Irish saying, Death leaves a heartache no one can heal. Love leaves a memory no one can steal. See you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.